Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, April 4th, 2021. It's Easter. Happy Easter Happy to everybody. Happy Easter for those who celebrate. It's the last day of Passover today or yesterday. Happy Passover if you're still celebrating. Absolutely. And... If you don't do those holidays, I hope you had a good weekend. Yeah, I that's believe also nice too. Ramadan is also coming up soon. Right, yeah, that mm-hmm. too. Enjoy all the days. So today, Brendan, I looked at Fox News Sunday. I looked at Face the Nation and Meet the Press. And I looked at This Week, and I also looked at State of the Union. So I am actually going to talk a little bit of COVID stuff, bringing it back. And I also plan on talking about the new infrastructure slash jobs bill. Those are kind of my two main points. What are you talking about today? Well, I'll also be talking about the infrastructure side of things. And then I will be talking about Georgia and the bill that was passed, signed into law in Georgia by the governor last week. And then the MLB decided to leave their all-star with their games. all-star game out of, out of Georgia so that was making a lot of waves on some of the panels. So yeah, I'm going to talk about that. The two that I saw too. Interesting. Okay. Well, starting off as always, quality questionable. What do you want to start with? So why don't we begin with something of quality? This is at the end of the episode of this week. And this is kind of interesting because my quality is the end of this week. My questionable is the beginning of this week. <laughs> so, but we'll start at the end, right? Why not? With the quality. And this is a little report that Martha Raddatz had where she spoke to a bunch of her general and military friends about Confederate statues and their role and the idea of removing the name names of Confederate generals from particular army bases. Take a listen to this point that I thought was really insightful from Ty Sujul, professor emeritus of history at West Point. History is dangerous because it goes after our myth and our identity. And what I was doing was challenging the Army and West Point about who it is and what it wants to be. And now I am so happy. The Army is leading the way. It can't wait to change. West Point, they already got a plan. Are you changing history? We're changing commemoration. History is what historians do to look at the past to try to understand what happened. But but commemoration is who as a society do we honor? And we should honor those who live the values that we cherish today, not those who fought for slavery and treason 160 years ago. But that battle is not over. As the country witnessed on January 6th, those symbols of the past are still very much alive today. So I thought that was a really powerful point and really well put in a very succinct way that we're not changing history in changing these names. We're changing commemoration. Sounds a little bit. If you are an OG polylog listener, John Dickerson made this comment three years ago or something in a very John Dickersonian way. 
in his little aside talking about history. Exactly. Outstanding job he had done there. And this is just an important reminder. It's also telling that three years later, we have made zero progress, it seems like, and we're still talking about it. I think there's been some progress. Perhaps. Naomi, let's talk about progress. What is your quality? So my quality is one aspect of the infrastructure conversation that I thought was well done. I thought Chuck Todd's interview with Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi, I thought it had kind of one of the few moments that I saw where there was actually a substantive conversation on how this bill could be paid for or should be paid for. The infrastructure bill. Correct. And I thought it was a good start to a very important conversation that I'm sure we will see much more of. And and I'll tell you what, if, if he says no one will pay extra taxes if they make less than $400,000 a year. Uh, that may be true. We'll have to see the details there. Okay. But oh. uh, under this tax increase bill, yeah. there are a lot of people making $100,000 and $50,000 that are going to lose their jobs because of the extra burden this plan would put on job creators. Well, look, I, what, what they're talking about, though, is lowering, um, is, is basically finding a middle ground between where the corporate tax rate was in 2017 and what the corporate tax rate is today. From They would like to move it to 28%. I am curious, this tax cut that you guys put through in 2017, there were various promises that were made uh, that they would pay for themselves. Hasn't come close to that. Um, that it was going to produce 4 or 5 or 6% growth. We didn't even get 3% growth. At one point, former President Trump said, this thing's going to pay off the death like, debt like it's water. Well, as you know, the debt is way up. So I, I guess when you look at this tax cut proposal, um, when most of, the, most of the benefits seem to go to stockholders, with, you know, corporate, corporations didn't do what you thought they were going to do, which is take this savings and invest. They instead did stock buyback. So wasn't this tax cut kind of an economic failure? No, it, it wasn't at all. And, and un, until the pandemic hit in March of 2020, the, the tax cuts were working just as we expected them to. Unemployment was down. Uh, job creation among African-Americans was up. Uh, job creation among veterans was up, among, among uh, women in the workforce, there was more participation. Should the big businesses that benefit from smooth running roads and really good ports and airports that will improve delivery mechanisms, should they contribute something to our infrastructure? You got a whole bunch of companies that pay zip into the federal government coffers. I'm, I'm uh, all for looking at, at ways to pay for that. And let me just uh, again say that states like our neighboring state of Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, they've all found a way, uh, a fair way that the public will go for to pay for roads and bridges. So I thought this was fantastic. I think this like I said, this is a great start to having a conversation about one, the infrastructure bill two, how we're going to pay for it and how we value important legislative priorities and how they get paid, right? And I thought the other thing that Chuck Todd did really well here is 
frame it in a way that is inclusive of lots of different types of people. I think you did a really good job of summarizing the shortcomings of the tax bill from 2017 and how they didn't live up to the expectations that Republicans promised. Right, even, their own expectations. Their own expectations, even pre-COVID, right? Because it's when you could say, well, we're in a pandemic, of course, it's not, you know, responding the way we thought. But even pre-COVID, it was not meeting expectations. And so it's so, so important that we have conversations that help people understand how important things get paid for. Because the tax bill from 2017 was a huge accomplishment of the Trump administration. It's like their number one legislative accomplishment. Exactly. And so if it's not performing, that is super telling and is worth exploring how we get that money back because it's essentially all adding to our to our deficit. This is just such an extraordinarily great question. And it actually kind of plays into my segment that I was going to have, that I am going to have, about the quality of questions in asking about infrastructure. And this just rockets to the top of that list. Mm. It really does. So my quality is better than your segment? Well, my segment was about how Republicans weren't being asked really good questions. Oh, all right. Well, they're they're happening on Meet the Press. Yeah, it's, it's so good. But then it also makes you step back and say, hold on, why is this showing up just in a question in a conversation about infrastructure to this, you know, random senator who's on the show. Why don't we have lookbacks like this on the Sunday shows where they take a moment and they say, you know what, today we're going to look back at the 2017 bill. Well, Meet the Press Reports is trying to explore that, right? It's the new kind of sister show that is on Peacock that is the Meet the Press team kind of exploring a single specific issue. So I think... I mean, like measuring this sort of, here's what they said, and here's what the reality is. Yeah, I hear you. That's just outstanding. I'd love to see more of it. We love to see it. Brendan, what's your questionable moment? Okay, so this is a little questionable. I'm just going to play it and tell me if there's anything from this that makes you go, oh, hmm, I didn't expect to hear that. This is from the opening, the beginning, as I said, of this week. Good morning and welcome to this week on this Easter Sunday. A quiet Good Friday in Washington was shattered this week by the second attack on the Capitol in three months. A troubled follower of the Nation of Islam rammed his vehicle into the North Barricade, ran towards officers with a knife before police shot him dead. Well, I think more has happened in the week than just that second attack on the Capitol. Yeah, well, that and that is kind of the opening to his interview that he's going to have with someone who's kind of an expert in security at the Capitol. But the thing that stuck out in my mind was this this line where he throws in there, a troubled follower of the Nation of Islam rammed his vehicle into north the North Barricade. I said, oh, okay, well, that's a detail I hadn't really heard before. Is that kind of why the attacker did it? I mean, this, or are you just identifying this person's preferred religious organization for no apparent reason? Here's what... George says, literally, in his first question, literally like 10 seconds later. So we begin this morning with retired General Russell Honore, who led the task force appointed to review security in the wake of the January 6th siege. General Honore, thanks for joining us again on this Easter Sunday. We don't know exactly what motivated the killer on Friday, but it does seem increasingly clear that the Capitol is becoming more of a target than ever. Hold on. So you don't know that the fact that he was a member of the Nation of Islam motivated his attack, but you decide that that's an important identifier, more important than his age, for instance, or where he was from, or 
or any of those other things that normally show up in a report, you just decide that you're going to focus on this person's religious beliefs as the identifier, something that you don't do for so many white, often Christian men who commit mass murder. It's it's just, what the hell is going on here? Now, I will answer myself slightly because there is a bit of an answer. The Nation of Islam by the Southern Poverty Law Center is identified as a hate group. Although it is a religious group, it's got lots of issues with anti-Semitism, but of course we know its history with Malcolm X, who ultimately cut his ties to it. So one could think of it as a an organization that might raise questions, but it is a legal organization. It is an organization that a lot of black men and women ascribe to, and it is a religious organization. And the fact that George himself says, we don't know what motivated the killer on Friday, really should make us step back and ask why the team at This Week decided it was so important when we don't say the man's name, we don't say his age, we don't say where he's from, but all we say is that he's a troubled follower of the Nation of Islam. That's not right. It's not right. This, sometimes people feel like they need to add all the details and thinking all the details are relevant, but sometimes they truly are not. <laughs> this reminds me of, I don't think I have anybody from my HOA who listens to our podcast, but we were sending a letter to our city council about something and I was reviewing a draft of it and the original draft said, you know, you know, there, there's an issue going on in our block and he says, and a Hispanic man is doing X. And I had to send in my comments saying this man's ethnicity is completely irrelevant to the story here. And it says my, more about you than it does yeah, about the Yeah, and my fellow board members, all white men, quickly realized that and then decided to not include that in the letter that we sent to the city council. So all in all, just because you have details doesn't mean it's part of the narrative that should be part of the official narrative that you are sharing. Yeah, especially when you don't share basically anything else. Anything else, exactly. That. 100%. But, Naomi, what was questionable for you? And this is interesting. You know, maybe we should add a little a little bit at the end here where it's like, what was the highest quality and what was the most questionable? At the end, we kind of like measure. I think your quality was definitely better than my quality, so you win that one. Do you have something more questionable than what I saw? I don't think it's more questionable, but it feels similar, and I'm trying to like figure out and I'm trying to articulate why, but it's not no, It's not as questionable. Not, uh, not that I think we'll, we'll it's see. definitely not we'll as questionable. We'll see, maybe. I think it's not. So anyway, <laughs> I don't have a clip, but it's just this general sentiment and I don't know, ickiness around face the nation margaret brennan framed the episode around equity and it really kind of perked my interest because i was like oh interesting i wonder how they're going to do this and it mainly seemed as if they were going to talk about equity around the covid vaccine distribution and how some communities have been impacted by this pandemic more than others and how they've been hurt both in terms of their physical health mental health schooling you know financial there's so many different ways you can look at the equitable, inequitable impact of this virus across communities. So I was kind of interested to see how they're going to do it. But it really didn't come to that at all. Essentially, she has an interview with Dr. Gottlieb, of course. So she talked to Cecilia Rouse, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for the White House. She's 
spoke to Representative Richie Torres. He's a Democratic congressman from New York City, specifically the South Bronx. She spoke to Jonathan Nez. He's the president of Navajo Nation. She spoke to Dr. Seth Berkeley, the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and they do kind of global vaccine distributions. And then she talked to Sister Norma Pimental. She's the executive director of Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. So it sounds like a good number of people. So it spoke to like very interesting people yeah. who do very interesting things around the world. Who aren't often on Sunday shows. Correct. But it was like not tied thematically. Sister Norma, she spoke to about the migrants uh, coming to the border and trying to give them support and aid and why she does it. She talked to Dr. So not about COVID at all. Not about COVID at all. She talked at uh, the interview with Dr. Seth Berkeley. That one was interesting looking at how we have to give vaccines or, or what might happen if developing countries don't have access to vaccines very quickly. The conversation with between Jonathan Nez from Navajo Nation and Congressman Richie Torres felt the most connected. Those two interviews looked at how COVID has impacted the South Bronx and indigenous communities. And they're very similar because they're looking at Communities where there are, you know, poor socioeconomic status, the social determinants of health are, you know, astronomical. The digital divide really impacts those communities. So I felt those two were connected. But then she also asked them about the infrastructure bill as well. And she talked to Cecilia Rose about women in the workforce. It just felt like it went in so many different directions that instead of listening to what these people had to say i kept trying to think of like but what does this have to do with equity what how are we going back to equity like right. it felt the 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 thread was so loose that it was distracting yeah rather than saying like let's look at what congressman torres has to say and congress and president nez has to say like i just feel like Make sub-themes within your show rather than claiming you have one theme across all interviews. Yeah. Which seems like a small thing, but it, I don't know, it just, it really, it felt like that they had a goal in mind that they didn't achieve, and it took away from what they were actually able to accomplish in the interviews themselves. Well, and this isn't a common thing for Face the Nation to do. They don't tend to right. have thematic episodes. So you would expect if they decide to depart from their usual... That it's well thought out. Yeah. It was weird. It was weird. Hmm. I mean, again, not atrocious, but it just felt very strange. Yeah, I think I win the questionable on that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to win questionable. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think we can say what is the most questionable. Sure. Okay, Brendan, well, let's jump to the segments. What are you starting with? Something about politics or something about journalism? Well, since we're coming from the questionable segment, I probably should start with politics because my journalism, there's a lot of questionable stuff in there. So starting with politics, and we kind of had a little preview of it with the infrastructure discussion, this is taking a look at the new bill that came out, Joe Biden's $2 trillion proposal to tackle the joke of infrastructure week and turn it into something real and to create what is not just an infrastructure bill, but what they're calling a jobs bill. Now, on the two shows that I covered, I saw... From the administration, Jennifer Granholm, she's the Secretary of Energy, and I also saw Pete Buttigieg, who is the Secretary of Transportation. And we've known from the beginning that they were going to be kind of the the rock stars of this project, of, of selling it to the American people. And so for this segment, I want to look at some of the strong questions that we heard asked to these 
members of the administration about this bill, critical questions and, and their answers, and then some of the somewhat weaker questions, sometimes really weak questions, to the Republicans, with the one little asterisk there that Chuck Todd did an excellent job, right. as you highlighted in your quality. So let's first begin with the administration, with what they're actually trying to sell here, because this bill is brand spanking new, just came out. This is the first week it's been out that we're talking about it here on the Sunday shows. And here's what Secretary Granholm had to say about it when Jake Tapper asked why in the world there was more spending in it for things that don't seem to be infrastructure than there are for things that are infrastructure. Um, This bill includes a lot that is not traditionally considered infrastructure. There's $400 billion for in-home care for elderly Americans and Americans with disabilities, another $213 billion for affordable housing. It spends more on electric vehicles than on roads and bridges. Now, you know that Republicans are going to have concerns about all of this, If President Biden wants to make this bipartisan, why not focus this bill on what everyone can support? Roads, bridges, airports, rural broadband. Well, it is focused on all of those things. I mean, Republicans and Democrats historically have wanted to see infrastructure spending on broadband, which this bill includes, wanted to see infrastructure spending on water and removing lead from water systems, which this bill includes. But this is the American Jobs Act, so it's also focused on creating good-paying, sustainable jobs in a whole array of sectors that will help us to win the future. It's the biggest investment in America since FDR, since the, the New Deal. Right, but in terms of priority I mean, more on electric vehicles than on roads and and bridges? Well, the, the need to make sure that we have an electrified transportation system to reduce climate change is, uh, is, is highly supported and very necessary. And so what does that mean? I mean, it means that we have to build the batteries for those electric vehicles. It gets back to manufacturing. Part of that investment is making sure that we can build the batteries in the U.S. for electrifying transportation and for energy storage instead of getting those those, um, batteries from our economic competitors. You know, China has had a, got, came out with their most recent five-year plan, and they have a plan to corner the market on the supply chain for batteries. Okay, we can just sit there and watch that happen, right. or we can decide, no, we want to build that stuff here, and that's part of the investment in the electric vehicle infrastructure. So, so I thought that was a, it took her a little while, but I think Jennifer Granholm, Secretary Granholm, eventually made it to a really solid answer saying, look, it's not just we're buying a bunch of electric cars. We're trying to build up our manufacturing infrastructure, our manufacturing capacity as a country to compete internationally. And that's why this isn't just an infrastructure bill, but a jobs bill. I mean, so, Brendan, I'm going to loop in some of my comments that I was going to talk about in my politics segment. Ah. It's just about this. Okay, it's a double whammy. Yeah. So I thought Secretary Granholm here did a better job than anybody I heard who she called it out front and center that this is a jobs bill and not an infrastructure bill, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's important to keep that in mind because it's almost people are talking like apples and oranges in terms of what the expectations are. Yeah, And you hear, you know, journalists talk about like, why is the infrastructure bill doing this? And 
what I heard, you know, the best version I heard was from Cecilia Rouse on Face the Nation, where she talks about kind of the infrastructure of our lives in terms of being able to get to work and needing support, whether that's childcare or elder care. And, and I didn't even think she did that great of a job, but I thought she did an okay job. Secretary Granholm here, I thought, did a way better job saying it's it's kind of building a modern economy more broadly. But I do think this question is really, really important and very valid because people were waiting for an infrastructure bill and there's all this rando stuff in it. And I thought some journalists did a better job bringing this question up more than others. Chuck Todd, for instance, on Meet the Press, I thought did it very mildly when he spoke to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. I want to start with... um for you, for our purposes of this discussion with both yourself and, and Senator Wicker, who I have later, define infrastructure as this administration sees it, because we're already having a debate of, hey, uh, bridges, roads, that's infrastructure. Elder care is not. Define infrastructure in your view. So I'd say infrastructure is the foundation that makes it possible for Americans to thrive. And what we know is that that foundation has been crumbling, whether we talk about care infrastructure or whether we're talking about roads and bridges and the other things that I work on as the Secretary of Transportation. We have fallen to 13th in the world in terms of our transportation infrastructure and continuing to head in the wrong direction because we've been failing to invest for a generation. The American Jobs Plan is our chance to fix that. This is being broken up into two parts. This part is approximately $2 trillion. The next part being rolled out in three weeks is, I guess, another trillion or so here. Is this being broken up because you think, well, all right, the bricks and mortar part of infrastructure, we can find Republican support. The social service infrastructure, we can't. I think we can find a lot of support for all of the elements of the president's agenda. Certainly what we're seeing with the American Jobs Plan is overwhelming support among the American people. Uh, and, uh, you know, in many ways, it feels like we've already convinced uh, America. Now we just got to get Washington to follow suit. I... <laughs> what is going on with the White House communications team? Care infrastructure is a phrase that nobody has said before. In like the history of talking about infrastructure. Well, actually, I mean, I think at some point on the panel of this week, Chris Christie says, what is care infrastructure? <laughs> Good. What is it? Good. I don't know what that is. That's how I felt. Oh, I cannot believe I'm like relating to Chris Christie. But that's how I felt. I was like, what is happening where I like, I believe zero, maybe not zero. I believe like 3% of what you're saying as opposed, you know. It's one thing to say, like, we need to build the buildings. And we like even that is is kind of pushing it uh, at some. And one of the other interviews, they talk about how like needing to build like elder care facilities and child care facilities or like buildings. Right. right. But the way the White House is talking about it is that it's about jobs. It's not just about the buildings right. that these services are going to happen. It's actually the workers who are going to work it. So it, it, like the connection to infrastructure is is quite weak. And I thought Chuck Todd here is is very polite and generous <laughs> to Secretary Buttigieg here about <laughs> just how unbelievable it is. Chris Wallace, meanwhile, on Fox News Sunday, had the tone that I was feeling in my head and heart. Here he's talking to Brian Deese. He's the kind of the top Biden economic advisor and was a key player and architect of this bill. 
The White House basically calls this an infrastructure bill. And yes, there are hundreds of billions of dollars for roads and highways and bridges and, and for some other things that I think you can argue are infrastructure, like expanding broadband. But there are also some other parts of this bill, and I want to put them up. Uh, $213 billion for housing, $400 billion for taking care of the elderly and disabled. Brian, uh, those may well be worthy projects, but they're not infrastructure. Well, look, I think we really need to update the, what we mean by infrastructure for the 21st century. Uh, if you look at that number on housing, what we're talking about is construction, building housing all around the country to help make sure that uh, there are more affordable housing units for people to access jobs and access economic opportunity. We're talking about construction to build things like VA facilities, our schools and community colleges, putting people to work, construction work that really needs to be done to meet commitments that we have to our veterans and others. Uh, and they, we believe that the infrastructure of our care economy is something we have to take very seriously. If for anybody uh, out there, many of your viewers who are parents, uh, who are taking care of an elderly parent or an adult child with disabilities, they know that if you don't have an infrastructure of care to support your loved ones, you can't effectively work. You can't effectively interact in the 21st century economy. So we think but, but investing I, I, in the look, infrastructure get, of care... Brian, I'm not going to argue uh, about whether or not it's a worthy project, but but the infrastructure of care, you're really s s stretching the word beyond all meaning. What you're doing is you're going to pay people to take care of the elderly and disabled. I mean, it's a social program. Well, we're going to invest in building child care facilities. We're going to invest in upgrading home and community-based care facilities. We're going to invest in our VA hospitals. We're going to invest in putting people to work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly how I felt. I mean, come on. Your infrastructure of care? Infrastructure. I mean, okay. I worked the bulk of my career in public health. I... I work in healthcare. Too. You work in healthcare. We are new parents. We've had like a whole journey trying to find childcare. Like we should be the most sympathetic ears to this suggestion, but it is like <laughs> it makes no sense, Brendan. The care infrastructure. Well, at this point, it's, they. It, Go ahead. Sorry. Like, it makes more sense in terms of you talking about, like, workforce development. Right, right, right. right. Then you're saying, like, okay, this is about jobs and we're building out a workforce right. for, you know, elder care, for child care. It's for, about jobs. It's about jobs. Just say it's about jobs. But you don't I mean, have to they pretend are. it's all about infrastructure. But they're like, why are you looping it in with broadband? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you can if you say this is about jobs, right? Oh, my. I am. Oh, God. Just So anyway, this was my main point that I wanted to talk about around the infrastructure bill, this redefining the definition of infrastructure. It's so stupid. It is so stupid. And I don't know, I'm probably going to get some pushback in tweets tomorrow about people who are like, we need to, you know, build all these buildings. The building, the building is fine. It's, right. That feels like infrastructure. That feels like infrastructure. It's the paying for jobs that does not make sense. That's not infrastructure. Well, I think, you know, looking under the looking under the rug here, the reason why they're doing this is that under the current Senate rules, because of the filibuster, you don't have an unlimited number of right. shots 
at reconciliation. Yeah, you can try to squeeze in as much as possible. Into one bill. That's the goal. Just squeeze it all in. I mean, they are hoping to have 60 votes. No, no way. They're not going to get 60. They're not going to get any Republican. No, but that's what they're acting like still. They're pretending right, right yeah, now. Yeah, yes, it's like fantasy Joe land. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, traditionally, it's, and this is worth pointing out, traditionally or, or through history, the reconciliation way that you can say, well, this is an economic budget-related right, right. No, issue. Right, I understand. Uh-huh. I'm you know, you're explaining the for, audience. I know. You would be able to do one of those every single fiscal year. And because they didn't pass a budget last year, they get to do two this year. So they did one, which was the COVID relief bill. And now the idea is this is the second. But the little cool little asterisk, this is the second time I'm saying asterisk today. (laughs) The little asterisk next to that is that the Democrats and Schumer are testing the waters, trying to figure out if they can squeeze in more bills through reconciliation because of some some little line where they can say, oh, well, we're updating the old bill and it allows for updates of bills to go through reconciliation. And so they say, we think we can have three, four, at at least three or four additional, you know, total reconciliations in one year, maybe more than that. (laughs) But they have to get it by the parliamentarian who's this unelected official in the Senate. Or they could just get rid of the filibuster. Or they could just get rid of the filibuster. And dancing around these ridiculous things. And people might actually be able to understand what's happening. But you know how people would say, um, because internet, you know, to describe things. Well, this is how it is because internet, because the internet is the way it is. I feel like this is because mansion. You know, we can just start saying that. A lot of this is because mansion. Uh huh. So I'm sorry, I kind of derailed your whole thing around the infrastructure. Well, no, Were there other things you wanted to talk about? Well, actually, Pete Buttigieg, yeah, I know you had some words for him. He, <laughs> he talked about jobs, though. In, in pretty good detail, he had some, I don't know if you saw him, have some projections about how many jobs would be created. I think it was around 18 million jobs. I don't know, it was I'm a big number. remembering correctly. I'm sorry, 19 million jobs is the, is the number that he cited. But Secretary Buttigieg was asked a very critical question when he was on this week with George Stephanopoulos about whether those jobs are going to be the types of jobs that those in the heartland are looking for. There is some skepticism out there in some parts of the labor community. Sean Steffi from the Boilermakers Local 154 in Pennsylvania talked about this focus on green new jobs. And he said, they keep saying, we're going to transition you into solar jobs. That's not how it works. We build power plants, petrochemical plants, and maintain steel mills. Would you ask Tom Brady to play middle linebacker just because he's a football player? Yeah, I'm not saying we're going to take a a machinist and turn them into a computer programmer. What I'm saying is that we're going to have jobs for insulators on these building retrofits uh, and painters and and carpenters, all good union jobs. Uh, We're going to have auto workers, union auto workers, I hope, making cars one way or the other. Why not have them leading the revolution into electric vehicles, which, by the way, there is a very hot competition for uh, with China and a lot of other places. Uh, We're not talking about... uh, uh, extremely mysterious uh, job creation here. We're, we're talking about jobs that uh, already exist that we can understand. If you're uh, a specialist in, in dealing with uh, uh, mining, we got to cap a lot of mines too, and that's going to create a lot of jobs. Uh, so I understand there is hesitation, especially because, you know, frankly, uh, there have been a lot of moments where promises have not been kept to labor, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think having the most pro-labor president we've had in a very long time is going to work very well for workers, and it's one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing workers uh, uh, right there alongside a lot of other uh, advocacy and community groups lining up in support of this bill. 
So I thought that was a very important and legitimate question because, I don't know, I've heard for years people promise that we're going to, you know, transition people from one job to another. But really, are they going to turn into coders? I don't know if that's going to happen, right? I think Pete Buttigieg does a good job of addressing it, but it was a very legitimate question. This is an interesting examination, an interesting line of inquiry. I just hope it doesn't become pigeonholed into whether or not steelworkers in Ohio want to do X job. Like I get sometimes a little frustrated when a national bill kind of gets overrun, depending on how one specific region will respond or use it. Particularly battleground states, right? Battleground states. But then it just, it, it kind of, it reminds me of the whole conversation around climate change and it becomes about fracking, right? Which Again, those are battleground states, but it's just such a sliver of the conversation around climate change. And so it's so loud, there's no room for anything else. And so I hope that, you know, I hope that if George was talking to somebody from Texas or somebody from Oregon, that he would also bring this up, right? The the acceptability, the usage of these types of funding initiatives. And it just doesn't become around like a handful of states and whether or not they want it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So now let's just... Jump over to the Republican side, where we didn't always hear the best questions to Republicans on the show talking about this infrastructure bill. Kind of ground zero for that is George Stephanopoulos again on this week speaking with Republican Senator Roy Blunt. Take a listen to the week T of this question. Let's talk about President Biden's infrastructure proposal. Your leader, Mitch McConnell, has already signaled Republicans are going to oppose those proposals. But polls show that investing more in roads, bridges, high-speed rail, broadband is widely popular. Any worry that the GOP is on the wrong side of this issue? Well, I'm actually for all of that. <clears throat> if the proposal was to do just that, I don't think there'd be a problem with a bipartisan uh, group of uh, supporters for, for this package. I've reached out to the White House a couple of times now uh, and said, you've got a, an easy bipartisan win here if you'll keep this package narrowly focused on infrastructure. And then the other 70 or so percent of the package that doesn't have very much to do with infrastructure, if you want to force that in a partisan way, you could still do that. Why would you pass up the opportunity here to focus on roads, bridges, uh, what's happening underground as well as as above the ground in infrastructure, uh, 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 broadband, all of which wouldn't be 40 percent of this this package. And that would be a stretch, I think, to get all of those things to 40 percent. There's more in the package, George, for charging stations for electric vehicles, 174 billion than there is for uh, roads, bridges and airports uh, and ports. Uh, when people think about infrastructure, they're thinking about roads, bridges, ports, and airports. That's a very small part of what they're calling an infrastructure package that does so much more than infrastructure. So Roy Blunt goes on for quite a bit there. Do you remember what the question was, Naomi? Something around Republicans are not going for this extra stuff. Here, Yeah, basically the question was, any worry that the GOP is on the wrong side of this issue? That's the question. It's like... Are you worried you might be wrong about this? What kind of crap-ass question is that? <laughs> that is garbage. Are you worried you're on the wrong? It reminds me of the Chuck Todd I know, I was just thinking about Chuck Todd last week. That we heard last week, which was, isn't this a bad look for the GOP? Talking about the Georgia election bill. Isn't this a bad look? Any worry you might be on the wrong side of this issue? 
That's not a hard-hitting question at all. And then the other thing I want to like ping George for is that he didn't actually provide any framework for what's even in the bill yet. Right. Like nowhere does he really talk much about what is in this bill. And so it's just kind of like Roy Blunt shows up. He asks him, you know, are you worried you're on the wrong side of this because it's got some popular things in it? And that's it. That is absolutely it. It's it's very disappointing. And it makes me feel like it's just sort of like a placeholder interview. And I don't know if this is a symptom of George being on Good Morning America every morning where he just interviews a ton of people every single day. And it's just like, oh, who's next in the chair? All right. Well, let me ask you some questions, you know, some weak tea questions, and then we'll move on. Like, they're placeholder questions. They're, it's like a placeholder-style interview. Oh, hey, hey, Senator, where do you stand on this? Oh, really? Are you concerned that things might not work out? Oh, no? Okay, well, we'll talk to you next week. Who else is coming in? Okay, let's sit someone else down. It's just like status updates. Where do you stand? It's it's so weak. It's It just betrays a lack of, A, preparation. There's hardly any preparation, it appears, in this that is hard-hitting in any way, and a, a lack of critical effort, and a lack of, like, sitting forward in your chair, this is Sunday, this matters, let's make it matter. Let's it's, make this minute It's this not an matter. interrogation, right? It's not... But it doesn't have to be an interrogation to be good, right? But it should be a critical it should conversation. Be, it should be a critical conversation, and like you're saying, it's, it's just kind of like a checking in. Exactly. There's nothing engaging about this. You're not making an engaging show. And Why do you even have the Sunday show? What is the point of it? If it's just going to be like any interview you might have uh, but, uh, in the morning. I mean, regardless of why he's doing it as a viewer, it's also boring. Exactly. Absolutely. It's, it's boring to watch and listen. Yep. 100%. But George wasn't the only one asking questions. Jake Tapper spoke with Republican Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi asking about the infrastructure bill, particularly asking, which is totally appropriate, about how it might help his own state. Let's turn to President Biden's new infrastructure bill. The American Society of Civil Engineers gives your state a D minus for your roads and bridges. Almost one in 10 bridges in Mississippi are structurally deficient. The number of roads in poor condition is double the national average. A winter storm just knocked out water in your state capital for weeks. This legislation would commit more than $100 billion to fix roads and bridges. Could Mississippi use the help? Well, there's no doubt that Mississippi could use our fair share of $100 billion. The problem with this particular plan, though, is although the Biden administration is calling it an infrastructure plan, it looks more like a $2 trillion tax hike plan to me. That's going to lead to significant challenges in our economy. It's going to lead to a slowing GDP, and it's going to, lose to, uh, it's going to lead to Americans losing significant numbers of jobs. Infrastructure, Jake, is an area where Republicans and Democrats ought to be able to come together and do something good for the country. But as you mentioned, this plan spends $110 billion on roads and bridges and spends more than that on the combination of Amtrak and public transit. So that was a much more appropriate question, asking about the impact to his actual state. Look, there was some actual research that went into that, some data that is framed here. It really kind of, the way that Jake Tapper is asking a lot of these questions these days really does remind me of Tim Russert and how he would have all that detail at the start of his question, a big paragraph, lots of data, 
and then the actual question is very simple. And that's what we just saw here. Lots of data here. And then the simple question is, could Mississippi use the help? Well done. Those simple questions are so great for holding the guest accountable, but making it easy for your viewer too. Absolutely. It, it helps frame it for the viewer. Absolutely. All right, Naomi. Well, that's kind of all I have on infrastructure here. There's, there's, there's more for sure, but some shows, I feel like the shows did a much better job talking to the administration than they did talking to the opposition. I guess my takeaway around this was the administration needs to needs to get their act together and be more ready for a robust defense of their jobs bill. It's interesting you say that because I didn't really have that that world where everyone was trying to call it infrastructure on my shows. Well, and, the, the- and, and so I kind of walked away feeling like both Buttigieg and Granholm did a pretty good job oh, I d- of responding to the difficult questions that they I had I didn't the think so. I thought it was... Journalists were talking about infrastructure and the administration was talking about jobs and no one was putting, uh, no one that I saw did it in the way that your clip of Granholm showed that this, making the connection explicit. Right. So I thought they need to do better. They being the Biden administration. <laughs> they, it's almost like on your shows, the administration did a find and replace for the word job. Yeah. And used the word infrastructure, you know, and it's like. Oh, how was your infrastructure interview? How did that go? <laughs> did you get the infrastructure? <laughs> Makes no sense. I just got an infrastructure promotion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Naomi, so that was a lot to talk about infrastructure, but we covered both of our politics segments. So tell me what stood out to you in journalism. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about something that I noticed that I cannot believe I have to mention literally one year into this pandemic that won't go away. But I was just so frustrated. And it was around the great disparity of tone between public health officials. And I don't know if this is necessarily going to be a rant against Dr. Osterholm (laughs) or if it's more broadly, I think there's a way that journalists could have conversations with quote unquote experts. They like Dr. Osterholm, Dr. Mike Osterholm is a you know public health expert, one of the leading national public health experts during this pandemic. But to phrase what they're saying in a way that lets the viewer know that not everyone agrees. Dr. Mike Osterholm was on Meet the Press and he was on Fox News Sunday, and he sounded so different from what we heard from Dr. Scott Gottlieb on Face the Nation. So can you just for a moment remind us, is Osterholm working for the administration now or is he just an independent public health expert? I think he's an independent public health expert. He was never kind of tagged with... Working for the administration. Okay. So that's good to know because a lot of people were, did end up getting kind of picked up <laughs> uh, by the administration when the Biden administration came in. So I just wanted to check if he actually No, he's still like in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Okay. Specifically, Dr. Osterholm is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. But we've heard from him a lot over the past year. Yes. So let's start off with Dr. Osterholm on Meet the Press and his complete freak out about the new rise in cases. The last time you were on, um, the metaphor was we are in the eye of the hurricane, that basically things were looking, felt rosy, and you said, hey, this is going to get worse. Well, do you believe we're in the midst of this fourth surge? 
And are we still sitting on a Category 5, or do you think this is a, a manageable fourth surge? Well, thank you, Chuck, for having me again. And first of all, let me say that at this time, we really are in a Category 5 hurricane status with regard to the rest of the world. At this point, uh, we will see in the next two weeks the highest number of cases reported globally uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. In terms of the United States, we're just at the beginning of this surge. We haven't even really begun to see it yet. We have had, over the course of the past year, surges of cases that occur in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, and they subside. Then we see big increases in cases through all the southern Sunbelt states. Then it subsides in the Northeast and Midwest come back again. And we're now, I think, in that cycle where the upper Midwest is just now beginning to start this fourth surge. And I think it was a wake-up call to everyone yesterday when Michigan reported out 8,400 new cases, and we're now seeing increasing number of severe illnesses, ICU hospitalizations, in individuals who are between 30 and 50 years of age who have not been vaccinated. So that sounds super serious. Yeah, a very clear-eyed prediction that this is what we've seen before, starting in the upper Midwest, and then it's going to come to the rest of the country. You can count, you know, start your watches and yeah, set and the, your watch it's, to it. It's bad in the other parts of the world, and it's only a matter of time before it's bad here. Now take a listen to what Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner and also now a board member of Pfizer, had to say about this very same subject on Face the Nation. Gottlieb, I've never heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) We are vaccinating 4 million people a day, but when you look at the infection levels, do you see a fourth wave? I don't think it's gonna be a true fourth wave. I think we've probably um, delayed the point at which we can get this behind us for the summer, but we haven't forestalled that opportunity. I think with the rate of vaccination that we're uh, having right now, we're vaccinating, as you said, 4 million people a day. I think that's probably gonna reach 5 million people a day. And the level of immunity that we already have in the population, we've vaccinated more than 100 million Americans. We've probably infected about 130 million Americans. So you have somewhere around 200 million Americans that have some level of immunity in them already. I think that there's enough immunity in the population that you're not going to see a true fourth wave of infection. What we're seeing is pockets of infection around the country, particularly in younger people who haven't been vaccinated and also in school-aged children. If you look what's happening in Michigan and Minnesota and Massachusetts, for example, you're seeing outbreaks in schools and infections and social cohorts that haven't been exposed to the virus before. Maybe we're doing a better job sheltering. Now they're out and about getting exposed to the virus and they're getting infected. So the infection is changing its contours in terms of who's being stricken by it right now. Gottlieb is always just a breath of fresh air because not just because of this story he's telling, but what he is saying, the detail that he goes into, the authority that he speaks with, he gives you the data kind of he like gives you the conclusion, then he gives you the data, then he reinforces the conclusion. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I heard Dr. Gottlieb, and I'm like, okay, this is serious. There are pockets of the country where the virus feels very different, and we're learning a lot, but there's parameters that, there's, there's actionable things that we can do to stay the course of vaccinating as many people as possible to increase our vaccination rates and ideally get out of this hellhole, right? And like the disparity here between Dr. Osterholm and Dr. Gottlieb is just astronomical. And if you were like, most people don't listen to multiple Sunday shows, right? So if you just heard Meet the Press, you're now starting your week potentially freaking out that we're going to be in this for another like six to eight months practically. Absolutely. And it's not what other people are saying. Now, I hope Dr. Gottlieb is right. I hope Dr. Osterholm is very wrong. 
you know, there's a chance that I am putting my money on, on the wrong bet. But either way, I feel like I am approaching the next few weeks a little more clear-eyed that while the virus is changing, big picture, there's actionable things that we can do. Like, I'm not, I feel like I'm so over people having either strategy of you need to scare people, scare Americans to get them to not to be dangerous in this pandemic. Give them tools, give them data, give them facts so that people can make the best choices for their families. Well, speaking of, can you share that uh, that tweet that you shared with me earlier in the week about the mixed messages we were seeing from the Biden administration? Well, funny you say that because that's also another part of the mixed messaging that I wanted to talk about. Chuck Todd asked about the confusing, what seems to be conflicting statements from the CDC when he talked to Dr. Osterholm. I want to actually put up some CDC um, headlines from the week because there was a little bit of confusion and I want you to try to clear it up. And I get there's guidelines and then there's there's uh, interpreting the guidelines. You know, we had the CDC reiterating that Americans should limit their travel as um, as the U.S. hits 30 million cases. And then, of course, they say fully vaccinated people can travel in the U.S. without tests or quarantines. Then we had the CDC data suggesting that vaccinated folks don't carry or spread virus. Then there's some scientists said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't know if that's the case per se. And then there's this the president of Argentina apparently has COVID after getting the Sputnik vaccine. So clear up this confusion for us. And is the CDC, um, should it should they be clear on what our guidelines are? Well, we all want to be clear. And I do give uh, the uh, director of the CDC, Rochelle Lewinsky, great credit for I think being a truth teller right now. But let me just give an example on the airplane flight. Uh, when you get vaccinated, it's like buying a fireproof suit that works 90 to 95% of the time, but it doesn't work all the time. So why want to walk into a big fire if you don't have to? So what they are basically saying is, is yes, if you are vaccinated, you can start opening up a lot of things in your life that you couldn't do before. But now, if you know you're going to be walking into a fire, why do it? So I think their message was completely consistent, although it may have confused the public. So get vaccinated. That's your fireproof suit. But don't put yourself in harm's way unnecessarily because it's not going to be foolproof. They were very consistent, even if people were confused. <laughs> yeah, that's a failure. <laughs> that is a communications failure. Again, Chris Wallace had the tone an exasperation that I felt in my heart. Remember in the <laughs> in earlier the pandemic when there was um was it in Japan? There was some theme park where they told people to scream in their heart or to scream inside, but not to scream out loud because of the pandemic. Oh right. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. It's like <laughs> that that's how I felt listening to these shows. I do think that's an interesting analogy I haven't heard before about the fireproof suit. And it does help you kind of visualize what the dangers might be. I don't know. I don't know if it's a very good analogy because I think it runs the risk of people saying, well, what's the point of having the vaccine at all? Right. If, I, if I'm if i not genuinely safe. Right. And it also, it doesn't recognize that like, well, I have to walk through that fire to get my groceries. Should I just sit in my house and, right. and, and, and not get my groceries? Should I not go mail this package to somebody like, like the world is a fire right it's not like going to a like a big family party like of course people should not be doing that right now right this kind of making 
anything that's not in your home a fire. And that is not accurate. Yep. Take a listen to how Chris Wallace talked about these conflicting CDC statements. Yeah, but let me pick up on that, doctor, because we're getting mixed messaging from the CDC. On Friday, the CDC put up a new travel warning, and it said that people who are fully vaccinated can travel safely within the U.S., but it also warned against non-essential travel. So, frankly, as somebody I've gotten fully vaccinated, I don't know how to make sense of that. If it's, if, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, is it safe to get on an airplane or not? You know, and that's a very, very fair critique. Uh, we do have a problem right now from a public health messaging standpoint, trying to nuance that message. And exactly uh, uh, what you do uh, does put you at increased risk if you're around a lot more virus. So, for example, traveling. If you're fully vaccinated, you have a lot of, lot of protection from that vaccine. But it's not perfect. It's not 100%. So if you want to reduce your risk from even getting infected with uh, ex- the kind of exposure you might have in the community where the virus level is much higher right now, then avoid it if it's non-essential. But uh, we have to do a a better job of helping the public understand this is short term. All we're trying to do is get through this surge of cases that are going to occur over the next six to eight to 10 weeks because of this B117 variant. The future looks very bright this next summer. I really think Chris Wallace here is just signposting his life away (laughs) in this episode so that people understand that their frustrations or their confusions are completely valid. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of outrageous that the two shows that I covered didn't mention this at all, like at all, period. Oh, interesting. Not one word about it. So really, really good for these, the shows that you're talking about covering this absolute mess. You know, it it is really messed up. And I think that's probably why, I mean, I didn't have any administration officials who are officially talking about the virus on my shows this week. Did you? No, that's because they probably don't want to go on because no one understands what they're doing. No, I think it's because they don't want to be... They don't want to have to defend these conflicting statements. have to defend this conflicting, conflicting stuff. So just one, one more kind of brief side-by-side comparison was the conversation around schools. Take a listen to Dr. Austin Holm on Fox News Sunday talking about his freak out about schools and infection rates. Just before we came on the air, you were telling me about a spike in cases in schools in Minnesota? There's a spike in cases all over. Uh, Kids, uh, particularly those eighth grade and younger, were not really um, much of a part of the pandemic that we saw uh, in the past 10 months. Uh, Very few cases uh, in terms of transmission. Uh, They did not serve as important sources of the virus and to the rest of the community. That has completely turned on its head with B117. They are now, as kids, getting infected at the same rate that adults do. They're very effective at transmitting the virus. And right here alone, just in Minnesota, in the last two weeks, we've had 749 schools with cases. Uh, In Michigan, the same thing. Anywhere you look where you see this emerging, you see that kids are playing a huge role in the transmission of this. So all the things that we had planned for about kids in schools with this virus are really uh, no longer applicable. We've got to take a whole new look at this issue. So, So where are we now? Are you saying that we need to close schools back down, that we need to to put uh, <clears throat> mandate that people wear masks and lock down businesses and restaurants and gyms and all of that? Where are we? 
Well, let's just first of all take a look at where the rest of the world is as an instruction to what we need to consider. Uh, there isn't a country in the world right now that is seeing a big increase in this B117 that is not locking down. We're the exception. And so uh, the bottom line message from all of these countries is we could not control this virus until we did lock down. Wow, lots of doom in well, that answer. Lots of uh, very lots scary of doom information. And also doesn't acknowledge the fact that Children are really struggling. Parents are at their wits end trying to do homeschooling. A lot of school districts are already moving to hybrid. So what does that mean? And like, I don't know, it just didn't seem reflective of the reality that I've seen in our community and of where family and friends live around the next few weeks for in-person learning. Yeah, I mean, I mean, cases are going down in most of the country. They're, they're, they're still much lower than they were at the peak in January, February. It's right. There, there are these hot pockets, right. which which is what hot, Dr. Osterholm is Hot spots, doing. yeah. Hot right. pockets are... <laughs> hot pockets are gross. Hot spots are also not great. <laughs> okay, last clip that I wanted to share to kind of close off this segment in a state of calm and we can do this type sentiment. Take a listen to Dr. Gottlieb also talking about schools, this time on Face the Nation. You had long been a proponent of reopening for in-person learning. Given what you're seeing now, do you think schools need to shut back down? I don't. Schools aren't inherently safe, but they can be made more safe. I think we need to uh, stick to strict mitigation in the schools. So schools that use masks, schools that can implement some kind of distancing, as one epidemiologist referred to it this week, uh, go the full Harry Potter and try to keep students within defined social cohorts so that they're not intermingling in large groups. If you're taking those measures in schools, I think the schools can be made more safe. And I think the benefits of being in school outweigh the risks. But we need to be cognizant of the fact that schools are a risk factor. Children are vulnerable to the infection and that the schools can become focal points for community spread if we're not careful. I think we're seeing some of that in Massachusetts right now where the greatest proportion of the new infections are among school-aged children. You're seeing the same kind of statistics in Michigan as well. Both states recently reopened schools and I don't think it's a coincidence. Wow, a lot more even keeled on what can be done to keep schools safe rather than saying just shut it down. Or things are bad, things are bad, things get scared, or you should be scared because things are getting get so bad. Yeah. That's not tools or actionable advice for anyone. Well, unless people do want to just follow the, the what every other country has done and shut down. But again, like most countries aren't as big as the United States, don't have as diverse geographic areas as the United States. And that was actually one of the issues that happened early on in the pandemic that we heard Gottlieb criticize about how the whole country kind of shut down last right, April. Right, and it wasn't necessary it because was, it was so different depending on where you were. Exactly, exactly. So it is completely unacceptable that there can be such disparity from experts a year in. And I'm just so frustrated that if you're trying to be a safe, responsible <laughs> person during this pandemic, it can still be really confusing to do so. Yeah, and so much of this lies at the feet of the Biden administration, of the CDC, of our current leadership in the federal government that is completely missing this week from the Sunday shows because of their own communications confusion. They're not there to clean it up. They're not there to clarify it. And so we have conflicting messaging and people who just continue to be confused, which is us. Everyone is confused. It's really, really bad. Not great. Okay, Brendan, 
Let's close out this episode today. What do you have to say about journalism? Oh, my goodness. There's been so much frustration in this episode. I don't even know (laughs) how I can go on here. This is the story of a panel on this week with George Stephanopoulos hosting, moderating. And the panelists were, well, they're the ones that we know and love. Of course, we already know about Chris Christie. Which means Rahm Emanuel was there. Yep, that's right. And then for the Republican side, Republican point of view, in addition to Christie, we had, because you need two, of course, for any panel to be worth its weight in salt. You, <laughs> I don't know what that means. You have uh, Sarah Isker, who is also a Republican conservative commentator. And on the left, the progressive side, Yvette Simpson. Another very common voice. Yep. And that was the panel. So the panel, my, my frustration with the panel I'm going to focus on one thing. There's a lot of things you could be frustrated by, but I just want to focus on one thing. And my frustration is not that it existed, this panel. One could have that frustration. But what I want to share with you is my absolute disdain for how they covered the Georgia voting law. It is it is just criminal how badly organized the conversation was, how poorly the facts were presented, how missing George Stephanopoulos was as a voice of reason, of fact, of moderation, facilitation, all of that. Just horrible. George seemed to be very confused about what even this law was that he was inviting everyone to talk about on his panel. And so I'm just going to go ahead and play a little bit of what we heard, what you would hear if you tuned into this show and heard the discussion, which again was kind of like the top discussion that the first thing they talked about, it took up about half of this panel, which took up half the show, pretty much. So here, I'm just going to play a bunch of little clips, little little bits here and there, and then we'll, we'll reconnect on the other side. Chris, let me begin with you. You have a baseball affiliation now, one of the newest members of the Mets board. Was this the right move for the MLB? Listen, it's just a symptom, George. It's a symptom of what's going on in our country right now. I mean, let's talk about what the Georgia law is really about. Uh, because we haven't had much of that. Dropbox has now become a permanent part of the Georgia landscape. They were not prior to COVID. They are now. Minimum of 17 days of early voting, including two Saturdays and two optional Sundays. You're going to have all voters being able to have multiple ways to prove who they are. Driver's license, last four numbers of your Social Security number, even a utility bill or a free ID provided by the state of Georgia. Um, and voting is going to be till from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., as it is right now in Georgia. Terry, one of the things we're seeing here, it's not just Major League Baseball, it's Delta, it's Coca-Cola. It does appear here that corporate America is out of step with the Republican base. Well, that's certainly true, but I think that Republicans have stumbled on a pretty good message here, which is Delta, Coke, et cetera, these corporations coming out and condemning the Georgia bill, which, as you said, is ridiculous compared to other states. Delaware, Joe Biden's home state, didn't even have early voting in 2020. They won't have it until 2022. Uh, <clears throat> they're condemning that. They're condemning this Georgia bill without really understanding it. There's a lot of problems to fix. This was not a problem to fix. It doesn't end early voting. It it expands early voting in Georgia. The president said it ended it. Listen, here's what Joe Biden's got to live with when he wakes up this morning on Easter morning. He is doing exactly what he sat around in the campaign and the transition accused Donald Trump of doing. He is lying 
to cause racial divisions in this country. That's what he accused Donald right. Trump of doing, and he's a liar and a hypocrite. This so wait, so hold on, hold on. Why Major hold, hold, League Baseball is making the move? It's a business judgment, George. It's a business judgment. Major League Baseball has to make a decision about what is in their best business interests. I'm sure that's what Chris, I haven't spoken to anybody if, there, if but I'm sure it's what that is. Doesn't that suggest that there's something wrong with the law? No, what it suggests is that's the climate in this country right now. You that's should the ask climate, the people what who know. You should ask the people who know. I've been doing voter protection for 10 years. And just the idea that you can't give people water in line. I've no, held people's that's babies. That's not true. That's I, I, not true. I, 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 I have held people's you babies can't do while they go hearing. in to Excuse vote me. in order to enfranchise the vote. Sorry. That's just by, wrong. Do it by all. Well, means. Within 20, I think it's 150 feet. feet. Where in New Jersey, in Chicago, and any place else in the country, you're not. He's saying partisan groups cannot do electioneering by giving out food and water. And in Georgia, Bill says that there can be water provided by the state of Georgia, just not by partisan so things, groups. George. So I'm curious as to whether or not George Stephanopoulos made any attempt to kind of lay the groundwork of the basic facts of the law in which they were going to have this partisan conversation. No, that was it. I mean, I basically played it for you at the beginning there. You know, as he's setting things up, there was really nothing else. Why are there no facts in this conversation? What is the value of this conversation? If you have people posturing and Christie providing this faux outrage over Biden criticizing the law. Now, I do want to note, Biden has misstated some facts around this law. That is true. That has been fact-checked. He has been wrong by saying that the law, and the main thing he says is that the law makes it so people, that voting stops at 5 p.m. and people can't go and vote. Well, the law does not stop precincts from having voting later than 5 p.m. 5 p.m. is just the minimum that those that those voting hours can go to. But there is a maximum, and that is 7 p.m. They're not allowed to go any later than 7 p.m. The law does limit that. But why, I, again, back to this question, what is the value of the conversation? If there's posturing, Christie has this outrage, like why can't the conversation be, you know, here's the facts on the law. This is what's true about the law. Chris Christie, defend it or comment on it, but don't sit here and pretend that the law does the opposite of what it actually does. You either own it or or you criticize it. And Chris Christie is trying to convince us that this law helps voter turnout, that it's going to increase voter turnout, that it does the opposite of what it actually does. I mean, this is the definition of gaslighting, is it not? Like, you are trying to convince us that this is a good thing when it is not a good thing. And it is not a good thing. Much of what we hear from Christie here is factually completely wrong. Right completely wrong. So I've got some facts for you because I did the work where the show did not do the work. And mostly I'm leaning on on a few articles I read, including an outstanding one that goes line by line through the law, actually has quotes from the law that the team at the New York Times did. So this law, if anyone's confused by what Christie, Christie said there or what they've heard, this law means that voters will have less time to request absentee ballots. Now, in the last presidential election, 26% of the state's electorate voted absentee. That's a quarter of them, okay? And of that quarter, most of them voted for Biden. In fact, the overwhelming majority, 65% of them. So what does this bill do to that 65% of people who voted for Biden? Well, they've cut the absentee period in half, in half, more than half. From six months before an election to less than three months before an election. 
Less time to vote means less opportunity for people to vote and less votes. What else does it do? Strict new ID requirements for absentee ballots. Before, people had to just sign their absentee ballot application. Now, they're going to have to put the number down on, from their driver's license or another state-issued ID, period. A lot of people don't have state-issued IDs. A lot of black communities, a lot of minority communities, a lot of people who are skeptical of the government, and a lot of young people don't have state-issued government ID. There's also other new steps that require printing of the date of birth, and sometimes they have to include partial security num social security numbers. And if they do any of those things wrong, it can be tossed out. And by the way, that was one of the strategies of Trump's lawyers to toss things out on stupid little technicalities like someone, you know, writing a nine instead of a four on their social security number, which, by the way, I have accidentally miswritten my social security number before because it's similar to other phone numbers I know. <laughs> and so I've written the wrong number before. One of the reasons there were a lot of absentee ballot voters in, in uh, Georgia last year was that they mailed ballots to all absentee voters during the primary that they held. And it led to lots of record absentee voting. Well, no longer are they allowed to mail it to all voters. Drop boxes. We heard Christy talking about drop boxes. Well, in the core counties of Atlanta, there were 94 drop boxes in 2020. Guess what this law limits it to? 23. 23. From 94 to 23. And by the way, in the past, a lot of those drop boxes were accessible 24 hours a day. Now they have to, according to this law, be placed indoors at government buildings that close when business hours are closed. It's insane. It's so messed up. It's as if you had to, if you wanted to mail something and put it in the mailbox, mm -hmm. like, you know, post office drop box. Yeah. You used to do it before the post office closed. <laughs> yeah. And like you couldn't. You better get there before five before the post office closed because the box is not going to be there. That's Whoa. insane. It's just crazy. Literally does not make sense. So we were talking earlier about the early voting provisions, about the time of day and, and all that. Well, this law also limits the number of Sundays before the election that they're allowed to, precincts are allowed to have early voting. And in the past, there was no limit to the number of Sundays that they could have early voting on during that period. Now they can only do it for two Sundays of early voting. And by the way, a lot of black churches have what they call souls to the polls, where they invite their congregants to go after church to go and vote. Now that has been limited. And at the end there, we heard Chris Christie talking about, you know, the, the limits of food and water to people standing in line. Well, it's 150 feet within the polling place radius and within 25 feet of any voter standing in line to vote at any polling place. So I guess if you throw the water bottle across the 25 feet and they can catch it, then you won't get a misdemeanor crime in Georgia. And long lines are a big deterrent, by the way, of people actually voting. This outstanding New York Times article cites a 2014 study that found that more than 200,000 voters did not vote in the midterm elections in 2014 because they faced long lines. This law also puts more control in the hands of the legislature, the partisan legislature of Georgia, powers that used to be in control of the Secretary of State, who pissed off Donald Trump. Well, now a lot of those powers have been wrested from the Secretary of State to the GOP-led legislature. And finally, the final piece I want to note here, I feel like I'm uh, reading the top 10 list on David Letterman. You know, he would always end it there. And finally, the number 10 reason. 
So finally, this one is kind of crazy. So, and, and it, it bears, you know, a little bit of history here. So I don't know if you've had this experience. I certainly have. Sometimes your voting precinct where you actually go to vote will actually change your, your polling location and you'll show up at the wrong place. It literally has happened to me twice. I've only lived here in California since 2013 and it has happened to me twice that the place that I voted for the last time was not the place that it was happening this time. Well, that happens a lot in this country. It happened. It happens a, a hell of a lot in Georgia, particularly after the Voting Rights Act was gutted and the state of Georgia closed tons of polling precincts. Literally, between 2012 and 2018, Georgia shut 214 voting precincts down and people had to change where they went to go vote. Well, in 2020, if they showed up at the wrong place, they could just fill out a provisional ballot And then that ballot would be counted later on, even if they were at the wrong location. Well, now that's not allowed. Now you have to leave the place that was the wrong place and go to the right place. And we can imagine there's going to be people who drop off or people who don't make it in time to that place. And to put some numbers to this, there were 11,000 provisional ballots in 2020. Biden won 64% of those. Trump took 34% of those. So if you basically eliminate the number one reason why people vote provisionally, you're going to hurt a lot of Democratic voters. This law is pretty atrocious, and it's pretty insidious the way that it is atrocious, because there just seems to be every way possible designed to reduce turnout among Democrats in that state. But none of this data or information was provided on this week. And instead, we had Chris Christie outraged, yelling, talking over people, and presenting the opposite story of what this bill actually does. And if you were to watch that panel, you might walk away thinking, oh, well, maybe the bill wasn't that bad. And this is... The loudest person must have been right. Yeah. And and even George Stephanopoulos seems confused where he says, well, there must be some reason, right? Well, what's the reason why they're uh, against this law? Like George himself seems confused. You learn less by watching the show. Well, you get misinformed from watching that panel. Yeah. Unacceptable. It's just, it's awful. I think we have a one on our hands. So George could have had three options here. He could have, one, had a voting rights expert, someone who kind of knows the law and what it's doing and knows what, that voting is a right, not a privilege, and and what that entails. And, And understood this law in particular, yeah. Right, exactly. Or two, he could have summarized the most kind of important facts of the law in which to frame the conversation in which he wanted to focus the conversation, but it would require research from him or his team to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Or three, not talk about this at all. Those are your three options to do this responsibly, at least. Yeah. And you step away from this and you're like, what was the whole purpose of this conversation? How did George frame it to begin with? It was about... Major League League Baseball moving the All-Star game and what that meant and whether it was the right move for them. So this reminds me of a conversation, a similar conversation that I heard on Fox News Sunday, which also talked about the voting rights bill in Georgia and MLB's decision to pull the All-Star game. Specifically, there was a whole kind of angle examining how challenging it can be for voting rights activists like Stacey Abrams and others who are against this new law Mm -hmm. in Georgia, but at the same time don't want to have to defend economic losses to the state. They would rather MLB stay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, There are lots of interesting 
conversations that could be had on panels, even on this panel, but it completely went off the rails. Naomi, that takes us to show ratings. So it sounds like this week is at a zero. No, we don't have zeros. There's a one out of five. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, one is very bad, and that is what they get this week. You don't misinform your audience. So I think I would give both Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday a four. Wow, that's very good. They were both pretty solid shows. And I think I would give Face the Nation a pretty low three. I think the individual interviews are fine in of a, you know, on their own. But as an episode of overall, it's kind of weak. I think I'm going to give Jake Tapper a four. It was a good episode. I thought he had a strong closing where he was pushing back on Trump's criticism of Fauci and Burks and also talking about him getting his own vaccine. So that was kind of a powerful closing. I think he had pretty damn good questions for Jennifer Granholm. The rest of the episode was, you know, take it or leave it sort of thing. And there was not a real confrontation about the issues with messaging around COVID. Yeah, that's a real weakness. Yeah, that's a weakness. So yeah, I still think it was a good episode though. So that's a four. So two fours, one three, one one. Get it together, ABC News. (sighs) Seriously, seriously. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. Brendan, do you have something kind of top of mind that you would like to share as our dialogue challenge? I've got a good dialogue challenge that I think fits my demeanor for much of this episode. (laughs) Okay. And that is, it's so important when you're having a real meaningful dialogue to listen, to really hear what the other side is saying. But if you listen for a few minutes and you decide that the person talking to you is trying to gaslight you or misinform you or engage with you in a way that is completely antithetical to the facts of the case, you have no obligation to continue listening. You can politely say, okay, thank you very much, and go find clear information, the real information, the real story, something that will not fill your head with PAP. I love that. People who are misinforming you, people who are talking and not bringing you value, you don't have to listen. Yeah, you can be polite, but you can shut it down. Unless you're doing a podcast and you have to listen to the whole thing. Uh, uh. <laughs> so if you have any comments about something we wish would have been shut down or anything else really we talked about, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastitle and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.